it's great to be able to preach this morning, church. I want to ask a question. How many of you have read Mark Dever's book, um, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church? That book. It looked different a couple of years ago. If you don't know that book, it is a book that he wrote many years ago to help churches to become healthy by recovering a biblical view of church. And he's explaining in that book nine marks uh, that was practiced in traditional Protestant churches. It's not a book that covers everything that should be in a church, but he's looking at nine marks that he is thinking that the church may lose or churches have lost, and he's encouraging churches to have that. Those nine marks quickly are expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, biblical understanding of evangelism, biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, biblical church leadership. Now, you and I have a responsibility in this regard. We have a responsibility first when we go to a church to join a church, we need to see for ourselves, are these marks present in a church? And then when we join a church, we have a responsibility because then we are the church. We have a responsibility to become this church. Here at Kingsway, we desire to be a church where these values are clearly practiced and openly displayed. Why? Because these things are biblically informed. And we desire to be a church where everything that we do is biblically informed because we believe that God's word is the ultimate authority in our lives. So I want to encourage you this morning that if you are a member here at Kingsway Community Church and you see lacking, you see this church lacking in one of those nine, that you will speak to the eldership, bring it to their attention. We desire to be like that. I believe the passage that we are looking at this morning, which is not Noah, will accomplish something similar to what Mark Dever did in that book. And as we open the scriptures this morning, I think that the text that we will be looking at, we will find three marks, three marks of a church worthy of honor. And since we are the church, those marks are not only for us together as a body, but those marks are for us individually as well because we make up the church. I hope some of you sometimes struggle with questions like, what are the marks of success for a local church? Use that word very carefully because success can be defined in so many ways. And I hope this message will help you to wrestle through that. What are some marks of a local church and what I termed this morning a church worthy of honor? As Matthew mentioned last week, we're expanding our, our message series of 1 Thessalonians titled uh, Living with the End in View, and we are now going into 2 Thessalonians also. 
And this morning, we will launch into 2 Thessalonians and look at the first four verses of chapter 1, looking for these three marks of a church that is worthy of honor. So please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians so we can read this together. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Please pray with me. Lord, when we come to your word this morning, we come empty-handed. We come expecting and asking for your word to impact us. Lord, I pray this morning that you will, through your Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear what your word is saying, to help us to concentrate, help us to be awake, help us to hear your spirit speak truth to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at these four verses of your word, that you will change us because of that, and that we will bring you glory as individuals and as a church, because you laid down your life for your church. Therefore, we want to honor you. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly. Help us all to listen to your voice. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. So the three marks of a church worthy of honor that we will be looking at, obviously also the three points that I'm going to preach to this morning, are genuine conversion, persistent growth, and steadfast hope. And we jump right in with genuine conversion. The letter starts off, as we just saw, in the normal Pauline way by introducing who the letter is from. And although we know from chapter 3 and verse 17 that Paul is the author of this letter, he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. He includes Silvanus or Silas, same person, and Timothy in the greeting. And this is fitting since God used these three men to establish the church in Thessalonica back in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at that a little bit later. And then follows the description of the recipients. Verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you, like me, many times look at a sentence like that and we just blast right through it, hoping to get to the meat and potatoes that he's going to get to in a little bit, hoping for that real stuff that is coming after the introduction. 
And I think we have to be careful to remember that God did not use filler material to make Scripture voluminous. Second Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture, all Scripture are breathed out by God. And therefore, when we get to sentences like these, which seem very introductory, very simple, we need to not blast through them, but we need to stop and say, what is this? What does this mean? Paul says to the Thessalonians, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First off, Paul's use of our, in God our Father, versus the Father is quite significant here. Typically, how we see him use this is God the Father, but here he uses the our Father. And this is obviously something that only true children of God can say, our Father. Anybody can say God is the Father, but only true believers, only true Sons and daughters of God the Father can say, Our Father. And that is exactly what Paul is getting to in this sentence. Being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ speak of Christians' vital union with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. This union, this shared life with Christ is uniquely Christian. You never hear anybody speak of being one with Buddha. Or there is no in ISIS-ness. This is Christian terminology. And it is so because what it means for us to be in God the Father is that he saved us into his family. He adopted us as sons and daughters, and he says, you are in me. And so as Christians, when we are saved and we are adopted, we are in God the Father. This union, this in God the Father is not our doing. It is God's doing because it speaks of life in God the Father and in Christ Jesus through the redemption that was accomplished by Christ on our behalf and our adoption by the Father. These are meaningful words, those two words that he is saying in our three Father. A meaningful, meaningful words. Look with me at Ephesians 1. If you know Ephesians 1, it's a chapter that has a lot of in him vocabulary. And verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when Paul says in verse 1 to the church of Thessalonians, 
in God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, these are not merely introductory words. These are not throwaway words. These are not filler words. Paul is, in fact, acknowledging their genuine conversion. In him you have redemption through your blood. And so we can think, well, isn't that true for all churches, genuine redemption? Nope, it is not. Can you remember the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3? Of whom God says, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What Paul is saying here is, you are in God our Father. You have experienced genuine conversion. Thessalonians, you are Christians indeed. Not because of anything you have done or accomplished, but because of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. And Paul is encouraging this church by acknowledging their genuine conversion. It's grace for that church. And here's the question that we as a church have to answer. If Jesus Christ would return today, would we be found in our God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ? More specifically, individual persons sitting here this morning, will you be found in God, our Father? Meaning, have you experienced a genuine conversion? Are you a child of the living God? Are you a Christian? Or the opposite, will you be found not in, but outside God our Father? Meaning you have not experienced conversion or salvation. You are not a Christian. Friends, how we are found when Jesus Christ returns is absolutely important for eternity. If you are a Christian, you are found in God the Father when Christ returns. You will be welcomed by God into his kingdom prepared for those who love him. But if you are found to not be a Christian, not having experienced genuine conversion, then one day when you stand before God's throne, judgment throne, and that day is coming, the words will be, I never knew you. Depart from me. The stakes cannot be higher, and so I urge you, if you have not experienced genuine conversion, what do I mean by that? If you have not placed your trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, believing that that is the only way to be saved, if you have not repented of your sins and turned away from your sins, if you are not living for Christ in obedience to his word, then you have not experienced genuine conversion. And I want to encourage you that it is available for you. 
God's salvation is available to you, friend. And I want to encourage you that after the meeting this morning, that you grab a faithful friend who is a Christian or that you come up front. I'd love to speak with you and talk with you and pray with you. The first mark of a church worthy of honor is genuine conversion. The second mark we see in this passage of a church worthy of honor is persistent growth. Look, at, look with me at verse 3. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and your love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, let's be clear about this. The Thessalonian Christians did not lack faith or lack love to begin with. If we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, this is the beginning of the first book, we see Paul saying to them then already, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. So what Paul is giving thanks for here and for what he is honoring them for is not their faith or their love for one another. What he is exuberantly thankful for is the growth and the change that is evident in their lives. Your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing, is how he is encouraging this church. It is their progress in the Christian walk that excites Paul, that makes him thankful towards God for the growth that he sees in them. If we are honest, we have not arrived and we will never arrive in this world at the place where we want to be in terms of our faith and our love for one another, right? But isn't it encouraging and comforting, though, to know that the Christian life is a process of growth? It is not a required instantaneous perfection. Boom. Do you love perfectly? It's not that. It is a process of growth, and it is even more comforting if we realize that the growth that is to happen in us and that is happening in us is not our doing, but it is brought about by God in us. I love how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. He says, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Did you see that, church? We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. How? It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The same God who says in Matthew 5 and verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, 
is the same one who himself transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The same God who says in Leviticus 19 verse 2, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy is the same God who himself sanctifies us completely. Remember last week's message. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. This is mind-blowing because you and me can never become holy and can never become perfect. But church, when we follow Jesus, when we trust Jesus, when we submit to his lordship and we love him, then we are being transformed and we are being sanctified. What grace. And this is why Paul is not saying to this church, we ought always to give thanks to you, brothers. What he is saying is, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. The Thessalonians' abundant growth in faith and their increase in love for one or another is fully and finally credited not to them, but to God. Praise his name. So, does this mean you and I can sit back, have no discipline, don't fight for joy, don't battle for purity, don't pursue growth in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? We just wait. We wait to be changed from one degree of glory to another as we float down the river. Never. Never. If we love God, if we love God, we should desire to be more like him. And our love for him should motivate and compel us to pursue holiness. It should compel us to fight for love for our neighbors. It should compel us to pray for patience with our children and our spouses and our parents and our co-workers. It should compel us to flee sexual impurity. It should compel us to pursue Christ-likeness. But when we see change in ourselves, when we experience growth and we perceive increase in our faith, we ought to Always, like Paul, give thanks where it is due to God for the work he is doing in us. Christian, if there's any growth in you, it is God who is bringing about that change. We should thank him for that. And here's a valid question. Josh, what if I do not see persistent growth in my life? It's a good question. First off, it's often hard to gauge change in our own lives. We're just biased. Sometimes we think, man, I'm, I'm a man of God. I'm just changing. And it's not. Other times we feel through long times that we are not changing. One degree of glory to another. 
sometimes that change is minuscule. And therefore, we ought to regularly ask faithful friends, spouses, spiritual leaders, people who know us well, to help us gauge whether there is change in our lives to even one degree of glory to the next. And if we witness spiritual growth in any way, we should thank God for the work he is doing in us. And if we find that we are not growing, that we are stagnant, well, friends, then we need to run to God. We need to run to him and ask him first, Lord, will you reveal to me why there is no change in me? Is it because of my sin? And if so, can you reveal that sin to me? And let, Lord, secondly, will you give me mercy so that this time of stagnation will end? If he is the one who brings about change, who transforms us, then he is the one we need to run to and ask, Lord, please work your transformation in my life. I desperately want to change. I want to honor you by not just staying the same year by year. Unfortunately, I do think that this is something that many Christians struggle with, that they feel stagnant. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're in that place where you feel, man, I am not growing. I've been a Christian for X number of years, and I feel like the last few of those years, I'm just stuck in the mud. I want to ask you, please do not become content where you are. Go to your friends, your spouse, your pastor, and ask them, help me. Help me gauge if this is true and then go to God and ask him, Lord, help me that I can be more like you. I want to grow and become like you more and more and more. If you struggle with this, I want to also encourage you to come forward for prayer, to go to a faithful friend for prayer. May God give us grace to strive for growth in faith, church, growth in our love for Jesus and for increase in our love for one another so that it can be said of Kingsway Community Church like it was said of the church in Thessalonica. We ought always to give thanks to God for you as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. May that be true for us. A third mark we see in this passage of a church worthy of honor is steadfast hope. Look with me, please, at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. If you wonder what persecutions they were enduring, I think it's good for us to quickly look back at Acts 17 when that church was founded. 
Acts chapter 17, the first seven verses. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason was receiving them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. Paul went into their synagogue and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is God. And he explained salvation to them, that it can be found in Jesus alone, that Jesus had to suffer on the cross in their place, exhausting the full fury and the wrath of God against that their sin, that he had to die in their place. And that because he died, they were declared righteous if they believed and placed their trust in him. He went into a Jewish synagogue and he preached that the man Jesus was Christ the Messiah. I don't think we get the weight of that, going into a Jewish synagogue and preaching that to them. And then God, in his great mercy, opened the eyes and the hearts of some, and they believed, and they were saved. And from there, the church grew. And then we see the persecution that started right there. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And they formed a mob and they set the city in uproar trying to get these men who have turned the world upside down. Yeah, Christ is turning the world upside down. And from that point on, the Thessalonian church endured persecution. We're never told exactly what that persecution looked like, but I think we can deduce from passages like these that they were hated by the Jews and by their own countrymen. They were physically mistreated and they were dragged before Caesar because they said that Jesus is the king. They were severely persecuted. And what we do know is that Paul was honoring these Thessalonian Christians for their steadfastness in persecution and the, in the affliction that they endured. So the question is, how did they endure? 
we look back again at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were able to endure with steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, their steadfastness that Paul is commending, that he is saying he is boasting about, their steadfastness was not a resoluteness. It was not a determination, a persistence in their newfound faith. It was not just them gritting it out, standing firm against their persecutors like a rebel army resisting the onslaught. That's not what their steadfastness was. Their steadfastness was an unwavering hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the salvation he gave to them. They were steadfast because they trusted and loved Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ alone sustains us in the midst of persecution and affliction. We sang it this morning. He is our steady anchor. Listen to 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 through 9. Talking about salvation through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is what the steadfast hope of the Thessalonian church looked like. Although they experienced persecution and affliction, they had a steadfast hope, not a resolution, a steadfast hope, a rejoicing, a joy in Jesus Christ, their Lord. Why? Because they knew that their afflictions was not going to last, but that their salvation was sure and that their Savior was worthy of the joy and the love and the trust they could give him. The Thessalonians had steadfast hope in Jesus Christ as they looked forward to the day they obtained the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. That's what hope looked like. So once again, I ask, friend, how are you doing under the pressures and the afflictions and the trials you are facing today? Maybe financial, maybe relational, maybe sin, making maybe work pressure, maybe physical ailments. Are you, like the Thessalonians, steadfast 
in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring, trusting Jesus. Whether you struggle being overwhelmed, being depressed, feeling like just giving up, just leaving, running away. And I want to remind you and I want to remind myself because I can struggle with this specific issue. I want to remind us that what Paul honored them for was not their ability to be pillars, remain standing under pressure without buckling with a smile. That's not what he boasted about. He boasted about their the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your responsibility and my responsibility in the midst of the difficulties we experience today in this week is not to find fresh strength to stand and weather the storm. Our responsibility is to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, we are not to seek to stand firm other under pressure. We are to seek to love Jesus more and to trust him more in the good times and in the difficult times. And that is how we become steadfast, by loving Jesus. And so the real question is, are we trusting Jesus? Are we loving Jesus are we treasuring Jesus? Are we captivated by Jesus in the midst of our troubles? Because that is the only way to be steadfast in persecution and in troubles and in afflictions. Because only when we treasure Jesus, when we are captivated by Jesus, will we have true hope, church, in the midst of our affliction. There's no strength in ourselves to stand against all that is coming against us. It's when we love Jesus, when we treasure Jesus, that we can stand because we trust him. I love what I read in an article that Karn sent me this week from a guy named Marshall Siegel. Listen to this. He says, if Jesus does not captivate you anymore, it is not because he lacks anything. I just love that. Not because he lacks anything. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus radiates the beauty and the worth of God embodying infinite wisdom, justice, strength, and love perfectly and forever. He carries every continent, planet, and galaxy with less than a pinky, with just a sound from his mouth. He orders each wave in the Pacific Ocean to rise and fall as he pleases. He feeds every blue jay and hummingbird every single meal and decides the height and hue of each 
blade of grass in every field on earth. Seven billion people will take their next breath because and only because he gives it to them. This is Jesus. You know, we can decide whether we want to say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be strong or we're going we're gonna to be captivated by this Jesus who is almighty. All strength belongs to him. All power and all dominion. This is the God we can trust in the midst of our troubles. He is in total control and he is worthy to be trusted. So if you want steadfast hope, your hope is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he grant us, church, steadfast hope in him. That we will not rely on our own cunningness, our own strength, our own abilities, but that we will rely only Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.